Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, before we go too far, let me do the final advertisement for Sailrite. They've been a great sponsor of this podcast, and I've fulfilled the terms of our agreement. I will reach out to them and see if they'd like to continue advertising on it. If you have suggestions for other sponsors of the podcast, please let me know. This show is sponsored in part by Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping self-sufficient sailors with tools, supplies, and knowledge they need to sew for their boats. This second-generation family business is also the maker of the Sailrite UltraFeed sewing machine. The UltraFeed is a portable, heavy-duty sewing machine that was designed to handle all your maritime sewing projects from sails to covers. At Sailrite, you'll find everything you need to take on your next do-it-yourself project, including fabric, tools, hardware, and even hundreds of free how-to video tutorials. Start your next project at Sailrite.com. That's S-A-I-L-R-I-T-E dot com. Well, it's it's, uh, October, I guess, 2nd right now. I've been back from my summer sale for a couple weeks. I got back on September 15th, and I promptly came down with a miserable cold, which put me out of commission for about a week. And quite honestly, I was just exhausted. Uh, the summer sale was a pretty tough sale this summer. It was, uh, it was not the most pleasant time I've had sailing in the Mediterranean. I'll tell you more about that later on. But it's good to be back in Salt Lake uh, I've got a lot of work to do on the summer home. And so the elk season comes up again next week, so I'll be out hunting again next week. And hopefully this year will be the first year in about, uh, I guess it's three years since I got an elk. If they're there, they're there. If they're not, they're not. You can't really do much about that for the area I hunt. But I'm going to be telling you about the summer sale off and on through the next several months. Uh, I, I'm going to play on this episode a recording we did when we were on the island of Icarius. Actually, we were sitting at a cafe on the northern coast of Icaria, and we just pulled out the recorder and decided to do a podcast right then and there. The audio quality was not very good, and I apologize for this. The gain on the microphone was set up way too high. It's actually a little handheld recorder. It's a Zoom H2N that I use. And the problem with it is uh, you really can't see the VU meter uh, while you're recording. So you hold it to your mouth and you can't see if your, your, your audio, if your gain is turned up too high or not. And the gain was turned up too high. So the audio quality is not as good as we get a little later on when we're sitting on Jack's boat talking. Nonetheless, I, it's, it's okay, but not up to my high standards. If you have suggestions for future podcasts, drop me a note. But for now, let's get on to this first episode of the summer of 2017. And this is on the island of Icarius. This is Franz. Welcome back to the Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. Well, right now I'm sailing in the Mediterranean on the island of 
Icarius in the little harbor of Agiasio, Agio Kirikos. It's on the south end of the island. It's about the only place to uh, that you can have a mooring on the south side of the island. There's basically a harbor on the south side and a harbor on the north side, and we were trying to get to the north side, but the winds were against us, and it was miserable. So let me bring you up to date on what's been going on. My good friend Neil Fletcher is with me on the boat, as well as my friend Mike Allgood. And we, uh, we had a good sail today. I had a terrible night last night, but we'll talk about that in a minute or two. First of all, I'm going to let Neil bring us up to date on where he, where he came from, what he's doing, and whatever, else, whatever other stories he wants to tell right now. Thank you, Franz. I hope the sound quality is reasonable. The wind is coming in and out, as it has done all day. The wind has been uh, something, of a, uh, <clears throat> something of a curse to us today. It has, there's been uh, really too much wind, but um, enough of that. So I flew in to Athens on Friday evening, um, spent uh, Friday evening looking around the Acropolis, and first thing Saturday morning I went up there at 8 a.m. When it, when it opened, and it was just absolutely glorious. The last time I was there was in 1978, and in those days you could traipse across the Parthenon, touch the marbles, touch the Erechtheon, do all sorts of interesting stuff and get really up close and personal. But of course, that kind of proximity is over these days because there's so much damage from pollution and um, greasy, sticky fingers, rather like mine when I was 16 years old. So now it's uh, the Parthenon is covered in scaffolding and there is a velvet rope, so to speak, around it. So you can enjoy the glories of it, but you can't really touch it or get too up close and personal. But it was still a lot of fun. So then I flew into Samos in the afternoon and I took a taxi from the airport to the little town there, close to the airport, um, the name of which is Pythagoria. And it's a terrific little town. It's one of Franz's favorites. And if any of our listeners are tempted to go to Samos, you really can't do better than going to Pythagoria. It ticks all the boxes that you would expect of a seaside town in the uh, Cuclades or the Cyclades, depending on your pronunciation. You know, imagine cobbled streets, tiny little alleyways, gorgeous little tavernas with canopies of grape leaves and bougainvillea, pot plants of geraniums, cats taking a nap in the middle of the street, and the sort of aroma of thyme and honey on the air. It's really just a lovely, gorgeous little place. And I stayed at the Hotel Belvedere, which was run by a very nice man called uh, Michaelis, I believe his name was. He was a soccer fan. He was a fan of that particular religion with which um, Franz has no acquaintance whatsoever. But it meant that I could chat with him for half an hour about uh, soccer players past and present. So that place, if you are looking for somewhere to stay, if you happen to be in Pythagorean and looking for somewhere to stay, it's about $35 a night for a clean room with air conditioning, good internet, and a lovely view over the harbour, which is about a three-minute walk down the hill. So I had a lovely, uh, lovely evening there, met up with Franz very briefly with Mike um, ahead of sailing out today. But before I left, I asked Michaelis a good place to eat, and he recommended a, a restaurant just around the corner, in fact, because it's a good rule of thumb that 
the restaurants or cafes on the waterfront may be may boast beautiful views, and you may have lots of lovely images in front of you of the, of the sailboats bobbing gently at anchor. But sometimes they don't have to work too hard <laughs> in terms of the food because of their location. So the Michaelis recommended a little place around the corner called the Garden of Eleftherides, I believe it's called. And it was uh, open air, obviously, as they all are. There was some glorious Greek music being played. And because I was on my own and I'm prone to comfort eating, uh, that's a joke, by the way, I uh, devoured a, uh, a whole a lamb shank which was grandmother's recipe, apparently, according to the server, and a bottle of good Greek wine. Um, Samos specializes in the Muscat grape, which, for those of you who know Muscatel, would know that Muscat is an an aromatic and often quite sweet and cloying grape. But the way they make it in Samos, it was really pretty crisp and dry, and um, somehow or other I managed to work my way through a whole bottle uh, before going on Facebook Live and uh, sharing the event with uh, some of you who, who may have actually have seen it, those of you who are my friends on Facebook. So anyway, it was a very pleasant evening. Got up in the morning and uh, did some yoga out on the deck outside of my room, looking out over the sea, which was a glorious way to start the day. And then I hooked up with Franz, and we headed down to where his boat was, which is uh, has goes by a variety of names. I think the official name is Orno. But um, it was also, there was a sign there that said it was called Marathalambos. So I wasn't really quite sure what the name of the town was. But um, when we got on the boat, um, we had a little bit of an adventure getting the anchor up. And Franz will address that um, later, I'm sure. But it took us about 15 minutes of um, messing around to get the anchor up. And then we, as soon as we left the harbour... We were hit with winds that quickly climbed to probably the early 20s. It was probably 20, 21, 22, gusting maybe a little more than that. And we were pretty much going on a close reach or close hauled towards the island of Icaria because we wanted to go to the north side. France had uh, thoughtfully tied in, um, uh, I th- believe, a third reef. So it was the smallest the sail. We were carrying as little sail as we possibly could. Plus, we had the staysail out. But nevertheless, uh, and I, when I first looked at it, I thought, well, that's really not going to be enough sail. But France, as usual, was right, because uh, if any more, and we would have been overpowered. So between the three of us, myself, France, and Mike, uh, with a little help from Vanity, the self-steering module on the back, we huffed and puffed in uh, quite heavy seas, going to weather, getting a lot of blue water over the bow, getting a lot of spray in the cockpit. And we persevered for probably two, two and a half hours before we decided that it was really a little bit too much work. And Franz, as regular listeners know, enjoys downwind sailing and beam reach sailing, and he has a limited tolerance for beating to weather. So we tried it, um, but it just really defeated us. We just thought this is too much like hard work on a vacation. So we basically made a hard turn to port, and we, took, we went to the southern side of Icaria, where we were on a beam reach. And it was still pretty windy. I would say the wind was still gusting to about 20 knots. It was a lot more comfortable, and it enabled us to finally make landfall in this small, great little harbour, really, um, Agios Kiriakos. And we're just enjoying the little town, and it's, um, it's a small place. It's, you know, it's what you would expect from a Greek village. But uh, we found a nice little restaurant called Estatorio Tor Sivari, 
uh, it seems to be favoured by the locals, which is what drew us to it. And they serve a pretty limited men- menu. We've had um, some souvlaki and some kiros, which of course is gyros, as it's not, they're known in the States. And we're just uh, reflecting on the day, and it's been a, an exhausting and a tiring day. But um, the, the uh, litre of white wine in front of us and the good food and company is helping to uh, ease our aches and pains. So that's really uh, my that's analysis okay. of the, uh, the day so far. So I arrived uh, on July 16th with Mike Allgood and my uh, my nephew Mike Epperson that were the put-in crew and we we got down to the boat and we did not stay on the boat because it was just too too hot, too dirty, too full. Um, I was worried about what I needed to do on the boat this year. I already knew I was getting new sails. I'd already paid for those. I already knew that I wanted to put roller furling on the staysail, but what I didn't know was whether I would need to uh, replace the fuel tank or not. I had a hint last year that my fuel tank was leaking, and I decided I would leave it partially full at the end of the two years ago when I last pulled my boat out, and if the bilge had diesel in it, then I knew I had to replace the fuel tank. So I got on the boat, I looked in the bilge, and there was quite a bit of diesel fuel in the bilge. And so I immediately went to the boat, the marina, or the boatyard, yacht lift, Y-A-T-L-I-F-T, and asked them to <clears throat> give me a bid for replacing the fuel tank, and they did. And it took about a week for them to replace the fuel tank, as well as I was rebuilding my forward hatch. I knew I needed to do that as well. And those are, as a woodworker, a boat right, right next to the boat yard that I've used in the past to rebuild my boat, bowsprit and boomkin. And so I had him rebuild that as well. So really, we had a little bit of work to do on the boat, but it was mainly organizing work to be done when we first arrived. So we had two days of work on the boat. Ah, we also painted the bottom of the boat, which I hadn't planned on doing, but one of my crew members, I think it was Mike Epperson, suggested that we go ahead and repaint the bottom and I thought that's a good idea it had been four years since I'd painted the bottom of the boat and I used an ablative paint I always use the Turkish paints because I think they actually last longer than the international paints and so we repainted the bottom of the boat Um, the three of us did it Uh, both my crew members got bottom paint on their clothes so they'll be remembering the boat for years from now when they put on those clothes and they have blue stains on their clothes. And so we did that, and then we rented a car and did some sightseeing because there wasn't much else we needed to do on the boat until we launched it. So we went up to um, Didham. We rented a car. We thought of going to Cappadocia, but we didn't feel we really had enough time, and we'd all been tired of air travel and we would have had to fly from Bodrum back to Istanbul, Istanbul to Kayseri and then rent a car in Kayseri and head up to the Cappadocia region and we didn't want the expense and we didn't want to take the time so we decided just to rent a car. I think our car cost 100 liras a day uh, which included insurance which was about $30 a day, a little less than $30 a day which was a great price. And so we drove up to Didham, 
which is the Temple of Apollo, an ancient Greek ruin, pretty spectacular Greek ruin. Then we went over to Miletos, and this is this is one of my favorite ruins. And in my other podcast that I do, the the one that I do for the Series 7 podcast, I have a series of lessons on stock options. And one of the f- first lessons is on the basics of stock options. But I go back and, and Nassim Taleb in his book Anti-Fragile talks about the first option ever recorded. And I don't know this for a fact, but I get it from his book. And that was when Thales of Miletus, a philosopher, an ancient philosopher, decided to, um, well, his friends sort of came up to him and said, you know, you talk to talk, but you can't walk the walk. You can't make money. You can be a philosopher, but you can't seem to make money. So Thales of Miletus said, okay, let me, let me do this. So, so he, he had the clever idea of going around to the olive presses in the area surrounding, and this is in the Meander River Valley, beautiful, lush valley, which was a seaport at the time, but has since silted in to the tune of about four or five miles. The sea, uh, the seashore has extended from the silt that's been brought down by the Meander River over the time. And I think this is 300 A.D. or 300 B.C. I'm not sure exactly what. But anyway, Thales and Melitas went around and... Uh, went to the olive presses and said, listen, I don't know if I want it, but let me offer you some money to be able to use your olive press at your regular price if I want to. Well, that year the olive harvest came in spectacular, and everybody was looking for olive presses, and Thales of Miletus went and exercised his option, and had control of all the olive presses in the surrounding area, and anybody that wanted to have their olives pressed had to go to him and pay whatever he chose to pay. And, of course, he paid the olive press owner what he agreed to, but he was able to pocket the difference, and then he went back to being a philosopher after that. But that's the oldest recorded option, according to Nassim Taleb, ever recorded. But anyway, it's one of my favorite Greek ruins, and nobody visits it. When we went there, we were the only one wandering around this prop. What would you say, Mike? Was it about a thousand acres of ruins that we wandered around? A thousand acres of ruins, a huge, huge amphitheater, temples. Uh, it, it's, it's really pretty spectacular. And we saw one other group of people there of about four people while we were wandering around. And everybody gets off the bus in Cushadasi and heads up to Ephesus because of the Ephesians and uh, and the Bible. But nobody heads down to Thale and to uh, to Miletus. And then that day we uh, so that day we hit Miletus and uh, and Didym. Oh, we also went Ermopolis. There's another little ruin just outside of Milus. Turkey, that you have to know how to get to, and they had some actual archaeologists working on that. What was the name of that one? You have to know where it is, but if you look on a map, you can find it. And it's uh, another ruin we visited. So we visited three ruins that day, three Greek ruins, and then we stayed at a really nice hotel that I've stayed at before in the Meander River Valley. We had the whole hotel to ourselves. It was just three of us staying in the hotel. 
And then the next day, we visited an abandoned village that had been abandoned in the 1920s. And, uh, and the, the story I read at one point in time was that it had an earthquake, and the government of Turkey told everybody to move out. Since then, people have started moving back in, but it's sort of like this abandoned village that sort of stopped in time. And then we went up to Perini, another ruin that is just spectacular, up on the side of the mountain overlooking the Meander River Valley. And we had it to ourselves again. Uh, we had saw one other group of Japanese visitors of about four people at the same time we were wandering around here. But everybody gets off the big cruise ships and heads up to Ephesus, and nobody goes and visits these other ruins. So if you have a chance to visit Turkey and you want to get off the beaten path, there's uh, four places you can go visit if you want to. Anyway, after that, we got back uh, and drove back to Bodrum, got on the boat, worked ourselves to death in hot, hot, hot weather, getting the boat ready. Um, they did replace the fuel tank, but there needed to be some more work done on it, so I had to negotiate with the yard to get that done. The hatch was rebuilt, but we needed to be varnished, so... Mike Epperson took on that project of revarnishing it while Mike and I got the boat ready for sailing. We went to launch the boat, and, and uh, they picked us up and moved us into the, uh, the boat lift, and then they couldn't get the boat lift uh, started. So we sat around for about two hours while they replaced. They thought it was the starter. They couldn't figure it out, but eventually it turned out to be the batteries couldn't start the engine. On the big, big travel lift. It was a huge 130-ton travel lift. And so we waited around <clears throat> about an hour. Well, probably it was about two and a half hours. They finally launched us, and uh, and then I couldn't get my engine started. So then it took another couple hours for the mechanic to figure out what was wrong with my engine. And I'm not sure. Well, when they replaced the fuel tank, they needed to bleed the lines, and they hadn't bled them. And on a diesel engine, you have to make sure there's diesel in the fuel lines. But they said they bled it. They were getting diesel out of it, but it still wasn't starting. So he took off the fuel pump and took it back to his shop and did some work, brought it back, and started it up again. And that cost about $100 to have him do that, that which I thought was reasonable. It since it started uh, every time he hit the starter button it starts up immediately right now so I'm glad we got that fixed uh, then then we had to have the sail maker deliver the sails and the people to install the roller furling on the staysail that took another day and a half finally we cleared out of Turkey which is a headache Turkey is becoming more and more difficult we had to hire an agent to clear out of Turkey and uh, that took about two hours maybe three hours, actually probably about three hours. We sailed over to Kos, Greece and spent about three hours clearing into Kos, Greece. Yeah, so it was a day of clearing in, out and clearing in. Now in Kos, Greece, I had an interesting experience I'll share with you. I needed to get a SIM card for my phone, but to get a SIM card I needed some euros. So I took my debit card to a Eurobank cash dispensary unit right in front of a, um, a Western Union store. 
and I put my SIM card or my debit card into the machine, and then it came out with a bad ex- exchange rate. I decided I did not want to take their offer on how much, uh, how many euros for the how many dollars I was giving up, and so I canceled the transaction, and the machine said, "Okay, take your credit card." Well, it never gave me back my credit card. I was waiting for it to come out the uh, the little slot. Never came out. After it never came out, then it said, "Were we ta- you didn't grab your credit card in a timely manner, so we're retaining your credit card or your debit card." Excuse me. So now I'm without my main debit card that I planned on traveling in the summer with, and it was Eurobank again. Eurobank. Do not use Eurobank. I'm giving you a heads up. Do not use Eurobank. Uh, cash machines uh, well I, uh, I went into the Western Union and said well it's not our problem you have to go talk to the people at the bank call them up and I said well I can't call them because I don't have a, a phone and they said well it's out of town it's, it's about a kilometer away you'll have to go there tomorrow morning they open at 8 so I went there at 8 the next morning uh, they said uh, you ha- I had to have my debit card bank send them an email to get my debit card back well my call my uh, bank bank says they never send out emails to a bank another bank they will not do that they refuse to do that and so as a result i was never able to get my debit card back so i called my bank and told them to cancel the debit card and issue me a new one uh but i've had this happen in the past my wife had this experience one time before, and I will, I will never use a debit card machine unless it's attached to the bank itself. And I should have done this at this time, but I didn't. This is something I actually told one of my crewmen. I told Mike Epperson never to use a debit card machine unless it's at a bank, and I broke my own rule. So my advice is never use a debit card machine unless it's at a bank and the bank is open so that if it grabs your debit card, you can go into the bank and get it back. That happened to us one time before. But I would never use Eurobank ever again. First of all, the exchange rate was absolutely atrocious. Usury. Secondly, they were not very responsive. So, uh, that was an issue. Finally, we got back on the boat, departed around noon. We had a long sail. We just decided to head north. We had good winds heading north. And we were on one tack the entire day where we ran up to the island of Lipsis. We were going to try to get to the island of Arki, but it was just too far. So we got to the island of Lipsis. As we were taking down the main sail, I slowed down the boat and uh, I told Mike Epperson to help me take down the main sail. And while we were taking them down the mainsail, a big wave rolled the boat. It was really rolly, and he fell down off the cabin top onto his back, and and he was in, he hit his back and kidney, and is in, in a lot of pain for the rest of the trip, which was too bad. We would need a we so we ended up anchoring that night and needing on the boat, and Mike's. Mike was in pain, still in pain. He's left the he left yesterday morning, and today is the uh, what is today, thirtieth of July. So it's the Sunday, the thirtieth of July today, and he left uh, yesterday evening. And 
so today it was good to catch up with Neil and, and head out. We had a big day sail today. It was rough. It was uncomfortable. Well, it was uncomfortable while we were beating into the wind, but then when we fell off, it became just fast. But even when we fell off, we were going, we got at points on my boat when it was going 7.2, 7.4 knots with the the, uh, the smallest mainsail I have. And when I have them make me a new mainsail, my previous mainsail had three reef points in it. And I never used the first reef point. So I told them to eliminate the first reef point. So I went straight to the second reef point. And then I told them to make the third reef point about a foot and a half shorter than my previous third reef point. So my third reef is pretty small. The mainsail is pretty small. But even with that and the staysail alone, we got up to over 7.2 knots for quite a while, which is overpowering the boat. I was tempted to, well, at one point in time, we took in the staysail because it was just too much sail for the conditions. Then we came into Ikaria. And uh, the one thing a lot of people don't know about this island is this is the island that has the second longest lifespan in the world. Okinawa is widely known as having the people that live the longest life, and the second longest life is led in this island. So they have a lifestyle here that is conducive to a long and healthy life. They never figured out why, but it is. And uh, I have a friend here with me, Mike Allgood, who's offered to be the um, ethics advisor for the podcast. So I'm going to let him talk for a minute. Hello, I'm Michael Allgood, and uh, this is my first podcast, and it's also my first cruise. Uh, I've been sailing small boats and dinghies and racing them most of my life, but this is the first time I've been on a cruise boat. It's always been a uh, a goal of mine, a dream of mine, to go on, to cruise the Mediterranean and cruise the uh, Greek Isles in Turkey um, on a uh, on a cruising yacht. And um, Franz has made that possible. He works me to death, uh, but it's worth it. Um, and um, again, it's a it's a it's a dream of mine come true. And so. Um, any of you that uh, are wondering whether it's worthwhile, whether you should try it, you've been dreaming about it, you see movies, you see the Greek Isles in movies, and it looks so attractive, all I can say is is don't wait. Uh, as soon as you can possibly manage, um, come here. If you're a sailor, um, you can uh, charter a boat. And if you're not a sailor, there's there's crude boats, but it's it really is uh, a dream come true for me, and I think it would be a dream for a lot of other people. So we're having the time of our lives. I think I've got another day or two, and then I I head home. And uh, but this will be a uh, two weeks or two and a half weeks that I'll, I'll never forget. Um, and um, it was worth all the slave labor that that went into the effort, but. Um, Franz's boat is uh, um, is fabulous, and uh, Franz knows what he's doing. He's the best sailor I've ever met, uh, and I'm learning a lot, and uh, I appreciate that. So uh, here's Franz. So this morning when we left the the town of or- Orno, Orneo, or the uh, port of Marathacambas, which is on the south 
west side of Samos. Uh, Last night, it was a miserable night. We ended up, well, I've been to this port two other times, and I don't remember it being this windy, but the other two times I've been to this port, I always had either side tide or I'd tied so that my stern was facing into the wind. Well, this time I didn't have that option. My preferred spot was already taken by another boat. And so I dropped anchor and backed into the key. And my bow was facing the island, so it was facing north. And on the chart it says very strong gusts. And I don't remember them to be as strong as they are now, but again, I wasn't worried about it because in the past I was side-tied to the key or I was uh, backed in so that the wind was blowing me away from the dock and not onto the dock. Well, last night I got back to the boat, got on the boat, was laying in bed, and I heard this boom as my boom can cra- my, my bronze fitting on my boom can crashed into the concrete key. So... This is about 1 in the morning. I got up and, uh, you know, you don't really want to mess around when it's pitch black outside. And my my plan was if I had to, I would throw off my stern lines, pull up the anchor and go out around the side and, and drop an anchor, a double anchor. And then if, I'm, if I do drag, then I'm dragged out to sea and there's nothing there that's going to do damage to the boat. But I didn't want to do that if I didn't have to. So I started the engine and ran it, uh, pushing away from the key for about two hours. And then I thought, well, okay, let me tighten up the bow line, the anchor line. So I took the windlass up and I took about, uh, probably about five feet out of the anchor chain, tightening up the bow of the boat. And then I watched it for a while, put the motor in neutral, and we weren't coming back to the key. So I felt relatively safe finally turned off the engine fell asleep about 4:30 in the morning and uh, we were okay the rest of the night well this morning when we decided it was time to go i picked up neil at pythagoria this morning and we drove back to the boat got everything ready filled up the water tanks got some more drinking water and a few odds and ends and we're all ready to go we dropped the stern lines we pull up the anchor and we get out there and uh, the anchor won't come up. It's stuck, stuck hard. Well, Mike Allgood decided he was going to volunteer to jump over and take a look at what it was. And he went down and there was a big anchor chain all the way across the harbor, which was for laid moorings. And of course, my slip did not have a laid mooring. So I had snagged on this nasty big anchor chain, which was great. Uh, if I'd known that last night, I would have been, I would have pulled on really tight on the anchor, and but I was worried about dragging the anchor. So I didn't know that last night, and last night my bailout procedure would not have worked because we were snagged on this anchor chain, which is one more reason when you drop your anchor. Uh, Jump in the water and go up and check your anchor. Make sure you know what's going on up there. And I didn't do that yesterday. And it could have been a dangerous situation. Well, it wouldn't have been dangerous. But if I had dropped my uh, stern lines and tried to pull up my anchor, all it would have done is just basically hold me in the middle of of the little harbor. And that would have been fine. I would have just been swinging back and forth. But I was snug. I was not dragging anchor. Well, 
on my CQR anchor, and I know there's better anchors out there, but I've always been happy with my CQR. I know Jack got rid of his CQR. Jack Andrews got rid of his and got a Rockna anchor and really likes his Rockna anchor. But on my CQR anchor, I've got two lines tied on the anchor. One white, uh, basically a Dacron line, which I use to attach my small anchor when I use my double anchoring technique. And then um, the anti-fouling line, which is a yellow polypropylene line, about six feet in length with a uh, eye spliced into the end of it in case I need to unsnag the anchor. Mike Allgood went down and tried to unsnag the anchor manually and it was unable to, but I told him to run a line through the polypropylene. And the nice thing about polypropylene is it floats. So when you drop your anchor, this is a line that's always poking up, which makes it easy to spot your anchor. Well, this is the first time I've actually used it for its intended purpose. I've never had this situation before. So this is the test, and it turned out to be a good test of, uh, of what I thought the point of this was. So after Mike tried several times to get the anchor out from underneath this chain, I said, well, take this line down there and run it through the eye of the polypropylene and bring it back up to me. And he did. And just by pulling on that yellow line, which is uh, designed to pull up so I can unfoul the anchor, we were able to break free and it worked well. So advice, if you do have a CQR anchor or another anchor that has a eye that you can tie a line on, use polypropylene, it floats, mine's about six feet long, and it took us about, oh, 10 or, well, probably about 15 minutes to a half hour to finally unsnag, and then we were on our way, and we started out with uh, my smallest main sail I could do with my second reef, which used to be my third reef, and just the staysail, and had a good sail today. Well, thank you for listening. We'll give you another report in another few days. Thank you for listening. If you have any thoughts for future podcasts, suggestions, especially if you have a suggestion for a new sponsor for the podcast or if your company's interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop me a note, franz1 at medsailor.com. If you'd like to be interviewed, drop me a note. Or if you have suggestions for future interviews, let me know. Get out there and go sailing. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.